ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is The Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Too often when the topic of organ donation hits the news, it can feel like it's for the wrong reasons. You know, maybe a story about the illegal organ trade. Or maybe it's just because there's a celebrity involved. I'm thinking of Selena Gomez talking about being a kidney recipient a few years back. But even when it's not in the news, organ donation is changing the lives of Aussies each and every day. Last year alone, there were 1,200 organ recipients around the country, nearly double that again for people getting corneal transplants. My name's Nick Healy. I've been filling in for Rochelle this week. And when I say numbers like that, I know it sounds like a lot, but there are far more many people on the wait list. Put simply, the number of people needing an organ transplant vastly outweighs the number of organs we have available. And while a majority of Aussies support organ donation, only a third of us, a third of people eligible donate, are actually signed up. Now, obviously, that needs to change. In fact, public hearings only just wrapped up on a Victorian parliamentary inquiry into increasing the number of registered organ and tissue donors. And the report from that should be due before the end of March next year. But we need more organs and tissue right now. So how do we boost those numbers? There are some suggestions that organ donation should be opt out rather than opt in. Now, other ideas are around increasing organ donation from people who are undergoing voluntary assisted dying or maybe just something as simple as streamlining the process when it comes to registering. So this morning, tell me, are you a registered donor? If not, what's been the barrier? What's actually stopped you from signing up? And what might be able to change your mind? On ABC Radio, Melbourne and Victoria. This is The Conversation Hour. But I did want to start this chat by letting you meet someone who has had their life changed by organ donation. Jess Chapel from Geelong. She's a mum. She got a new liver just last year after suffering a rare autoimmune condition. Jess, good morning. Good morning, Nick. What was your feeling when you got that call, when you were told that a viable liver was available? Look, I have to say it is an incredible surprise. It's something that for many people, the wait is a very long time and you really don't expect it. It it comes out of the blue. How long had you been waiting? I've been waiting a little over a year during COVID lockdown. So transplants had slowed down a little because the number of available donors shrank because the impact of COVID was unknown during that time. Must have felt like an incredibly long year. Yeah, yeah. The days certainly uh, started looking very similar to one another. And um, I have to say, being uh, isolated on my own, in my own home, uh, was a very confronting experience. I understand that, especially when you are waiting for that transplant, your health is on the forefront of your mind. I mean, being unwell, if a viable organ comes up, can set you back. That's right, Nick. Uh, For many people, being on the wait list is really a game of survival. And so you're doing everything within your power to remain healthy. Uh, That means really um, isolating yourself from general community so you're not going to the supermarket you're Mm. not catching up with friends because you can't risk catching a cold or catching an illness that sets back your health what were the conversations you were having with your daughter while you were waiting um during uh my time on the wait list, um, I am the parent of um, a young daughter and it's a very confronting thing to be able to have to explain that you may not survive your health condition. 
um, I had lots of very real and honest conversations with my daughter Meadow about what the future might look like uh, and I spent a lot of time with her talking about uh, my hopes and dreams uh, for her future, uh, trying to help her manage uh, the confronting situation for her as well as myself. Jess, I mean, you got that call. You knew there was a viable organ. I mean, it sounds like that sort of, you know, in a movie, that'd be the next step of you waking up in hospital. But obviously, that's just when a lot of hard work starts. That's right. Um, usually, I suppose, if there was a movie made about it, that's when that's when the music score would change and elation would, would reign through. But that's simply not the case. Um, you you realise that you're about to step through uh, into an environment where your life is at risk. You're entering what is often a marathon surgery. Uh, my particular procedure was just over eight hours. Uh, and then you begin the long road to recovery. Where are you on that road right now, Jess? Look, I'm very fortunate to, to say, Nick, that I'm... I'm progressing really well in my recovery. Uh, I have returned to my former life. Uh, I'm back at full-time uh, work, loving uh, being back doing what I do uh, and really just trying to make the most of every day that I have with my family and loved ones. That is incredible. I, I guess not knowing from my perspective, how much do you learn about the person who, who's donating that organ to you? It's usually um, a very confidential process. Right. Um, that's important for many reasons. Uh, donor recipients, uh, we often go through a process and you have very uh, deep emotions and mixed emotions about knowing that you're receiving an organ and in order for you to survive, someone else has lost their lives. That's quite an emotional experience to go through. Secondly, the other part of the process is there is a family out there that has lost their loved one mm. and often their grief is the most important thing for them to be focusing on. Jess, what would you say to people who are maybe on the fence about signing up to be an organ donor? Look, I really encourage people consider organ donation. More importantly, I'd like people to have the conversation with their loved ones. Be comfortable talking about your wishes with your family. I know for me, my entire family understand what each other's preferences are. I know what my mum and dad want. I know what my sister would like. And by having the conversation, it makes it more normal for us so if we do face the unfortunate circumstance where we're facing the decision to donate or we're asked to consent for our loved ones, then we know exactly what their wishes are. And they can feel like difficult conversations, but they're not going to get easier by not having them. Well, we know that statistically when people understand the preferences of their loved ones, they are more likely to consent in that circumstance during that very difficult time of grief. And so I encourage people, have the conversation. It's just like any other chat that you have about planning the rest of your life, whether it's, you know, making your wishes known over having a drink with your family or over the Sunday roast. Uh, it's got to be a conversation that we all get used to having. Jessica Chappell, thank you so much for sharing your story and congratulations on being so far down your recovery. Jessica, one of the recipients of a liver transplant just last year. Cherelle from Parkdale's on the phone. Good morning. Good morning. Um, interesting conversation. It is just such a quagmire out there. Do you think it's difficult to understand? I mean, I've since looking into this, I've had so many people ask me, oh, what happens here, what happens there? It does feel like we don't have a lot of information easily to hand. That is my biggest concern. That was a concern that I had. My daughter's organs were donated. She donated two of her kidneys. She was under, she was 21 months old. 
and we didn't know the actual process and part of that problem is it is a huge process and I spoke to the medical fraternity and I said it's not explained it's just so alien and it's an incredible hard thing to do and that's why that option to opt out regardless of what your relatives want to do has to be done by the people who are actually grieving the loss of someone's life. Was it a hard decision for you making that donor choice for your daughter? We were very, I, I, it sounds really odd to say we were very fortunate. What had happened was um, our second child was quite ill. We didn't know she would make it. She was around about six months old. And I turned around to my husband and I said, you know, if she doesn't make it, would you consider donating her organs? And he went, you know, that's not going to happen. I said, no, 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 no. If, some, if we needed an organ, we'd be looking at somebody else. We have to think about this. For her, is that what we're going to do? And so the decision was made um, four years before our third daughter, Stephanie, came along. And so when she suffered um, severe head trauma and was taken to hospital and had to undergo two death assessments, and that's the other thing that people don't realise, there is a lot of protocol that one has to go through. So we were in hospital for nearly 24 hours before her organs were donated. I mean, oh. But the decision was easy because we had already made that decision many, many years ago. We had talked about it. And this is something that comes up a lot is how important it is to talk about it. Cheryl, thank you so much for calling in. It means a lot to hear your story and I just you know I said before in terms of becoming a donor I've realized that I personally didn't have a lot of understanding about what happens after I sign up to the registry people on the text line people calling in suggesting similar uh, I guess barriers with those complexities now Dr Rohit De Costa is the medical director of Donate Life Victoria doctor good morning to you good morning Nick play hypothetical here for a minute I'm a registered donor what has to happen for my organs or my tissue to actually go to people on the waiting list? One of the myths about organ donation is that it's, uh, it can happen in a large number of circumstances when someone dies. But actually, this is far from the truth. Only about 1% to 2% of deaths that occur in hospital occur in circumstances, medical circumstances, where organ donation is possible. And we're usually talking about people who die on um, on organ supports you know in intensive care or or emergencies and usually in very sudden tragic circumstances I guess what organs end up getting donated what can be donated um, so one organ donor can save seven or more people uh, uh, people's lives and many more uh, tissues can be donated and other people can be uh, lives can be transformed or saved through that so for example, uh, people, people who are waiting for life-saving lung transplants or heart transplants, kidney transplants, uh, people with uh, end-stage liver disease so, uh, can can um, can have a life saved through organ donation, and um, you know burns victims through skin donation, for example. So there's lots lots of people that can be helped through one donor. What might prevent someone who is registered to be an organ donor from actually being able to donate? Um, it's the the vast majority of time. It's that uh, it's the uh, circumstances that they die in. So if someone um, dies outside of an intensive care unit, for example, and most of us fortunately don't die in intensive care, um, we you, the, the death doesn't occur in circumstances where organ donation is possible. So someone really has to be on life support right up to the point where they die. Um, and in that sort of circumstance. Um, either through um, an, an, an organ donation operation can be um, can 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 be organised if if they're a registered donor, um, so that retrieval of uh, organs and tissues can occur in a hospital. I was very surprised while I guess reading up on this to learn that my family could say no to me being an organ donor even if I've registered. Yes, that's correct, and that's true of um, almost everywhere in the world. And um, I think one of the most important points that um, 
that Cheryl, when she rang up, made, and I think this is a really important point, and, I, and, I, and, and I'm, and I'm uh, really uh, grateful that she's uh, rung up and what a, what a brave thing to do to, mm. to talk about uh, her own personal story like that, um, is, is that when your family know what you would have wanted and when you've had a discussion and a conversation about it, it makes things so much easier. So it's, it's very uncommon that families do um, overturn, if you like, a registered donation, but usually when they do, it's, it's that they either didn't know what their loved one wants or they know that they've changed their mind. So uh, we know that eight out of 10 or more families, when, when their loved one is registered, will say yes to organ donation. That number's halved if they don't know and there's no registration. So we really need to be able to talk about this. We really need to normalise this as a conversation. Absolutely. And, you know, we, we need to uh, be able to to uh, discuss it freely. And I know that it's uh, it's quite a hard thing to talk about what happens to, to you when you die and what happens to you after death. Um, but important things are sometimes hard to talk about, but you know, can, it can can really make a difference to many people's lives. Doctor, just a couple of texts that are coming in, which I'm hoping you might be able to answer with, because they're, they're sure. questions I've had myself. Uh, someone texting saying, I'm registered as an organ donor, but since then I've had treatment for breast cancer. I'm now cancer-free, yeah. but does being a cancer survivor mean I can no longer donate? That's a really great question. Um, in fact, there are very few absolute contraindications to organ donation. So... For example, many cancers where people have had treatment and there's a long period um, of, uh, of, of uh, since they've had that treatment, uh, usually that doesn't necessarily preclude them from being an organ donor. So it really depends on the particular type of cancer and how long they've had it and the, certain, and the types of treatments they've had. What happens in each and every circumstance where someone is, um, is being considered for organ donation um, we have staff that look, look through the medical history very carefully to make sure that uh, the, the, any organ donation gift is really going to benefit some, someone as safely as possible. And I guess in a similar vein, someone said, you know, I've been on the organ donor register for years, but since then I've been diagnosed with a cluster of autoimmune diseases. I am yeah. on immunosuppressants. Can I still donate? Would that be a case-by-case basis like the cancer? Absolutely. The same, same, uh, same scenario there. You mentioned that people often communicate to family members that they've changed their mind on organ donation. If I do sign up, I do change my mind. Is it hard to officially reverse that decision? No, not at all. So um, one of the things that we really want to make it easier to do is to actually register and have the conversation. And I think by having more people register and having the the topic normalised, we will have more people have these conversations. At the moment, you can jump online at donatelife.gov.au uh, with your Medicare card. It takes a minute and you can check whether you're registered. Now, if you are uh, not registered, you can register there and then. Uh, if for some reason you've changed your mind, you can't actually deregister through that process, but you can go and uh, contact your Medicare office or go uh, or, or, or download a form from uh, from the Medicare website to, in order to do that. So it isn't um, it is a, a simple process uh, to either register uh, or well, far simpler to register because most people we know uh, in the community do support organ donation and do want to register. Doctor, we need more organ donors. You know, we just know that the numbers of people on that wait list is outweighing what's available. How do we end up with more people signing up to donate? I mean, we talked a bit earlier about the idea of maybe people undergoing voluntary assisted dying could be donating. We talked about quite a large systemic change of perhaps making it opt out rather than opt in. What are the ways we could start getting more organs available? I think the best way to do it and and what we've been advocating for is to make it easier for people to, to register and encouraging them to have the conversation. So one of the um, proposals that we've put uh, is for a direct link to the um, to the uh, driver's licence registration system. Um, we know in South Australia, for example, that uh, the registration rate is more than double uh, 
um, almost triple that of Victoria. Um, and they've had a system in place where registration has been linked to the driver's license for many years, whereas in Victoria, we used to have that system, but now it's, it's not the case anymore. So um, what we need to do is just remind people that there is uh, this register, it's easy to register, and then we'll, people will do it because we know that the community uh, strongly supports organ donation. Yeah, I think the streamlining, just based on the text, I'm getting people saying it used to be easy to register, they don't have a driver's licence sticker anymore, I'm not so easy at jumping online. I think maybe the sense I'm getting is that by making it a little more streamlined would increase the number of people. Just before I let you go, obviously Sherelle's story was quite... um, quite profound in terms of being able to make that decision to donate her young daughter's organs. I know that sometimes making that decision, I mean, it could mean maybe a decision to turn off life support. It can be a really hefty one for families involved. What what does that decision mean to families? The first thing to say is that the decision about organ donation is always decoupled from the decision about um, about uh, about limit, limiting someone's life support, for example, or if or uh, the circumstances in which they die. Mm. So we always talk about organ donation after there is a consensus that that continuing on with life support, for example, is not in that person's interest. So that's the first instance, or or the second instance is where. Uh, they've, <clears throat> the, the, the person has, has suffered a severe in, injury to their brain such that they're uh, brain dead, so they legally they have died. Um, so the organ donation decision is separate to that. Um, and the, the important thing to recognise is that it is a decision that needs to be made at, at probably the, the family's, you know, the worst day for that family. Um, so that's where having... The, the conversation about organ donation on an ordinary day for that family, so m- many years, uh, hopefully before that, but that situation means that they don't that, that they have that conversation, that that registration, that series of conversations to go back to and go, well, this is what the person would have wanted. Very, um, mm, very finally, because I know how busy you are, just a, a couple more texts that have just popped in. Is there an age limit? A few people saying, is there just a period where you're too old to become a donor? Um, no, the answer is no. So we have had uh, people who've been able to donate their liver, uh, for example, into their 80s. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's there, there is no theoretical age limit. Dr. Rohit DaCosta, thank you so much for your time. He is the uh, Medical Director of Donate Life Victoria. On ABC Radio, Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. Nick Healy here. I've been filling in this week for Rochelle on the Conversation Hour. Greg's on the line. Greg, morning to you. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. Greg, you are actually a recipient of a, of a transplant. Yes, I think uh, organisation is a, a wonderful, selfless gift. I had a corneal transplant, cornea transplant, in 1983, almost 40 years, 40 years to the day. And that allowed me to have vision for the last 40 years, which is, you know, you can't contemplate how important that is. I mean, genuinely life-changing for you, obviously. Yeah, like I can see. Yeah. I mean, There's <laughs> no other way of putting it, is there? Not, be, not being able to see is a very marked difference. What the conversation we've been having this morning about a uh, few people finding it a bit difficult, we're seeing those donor numbers go down. Does that surprise you? Um, yes and no. Uh, as a recipient, you know, I'm certainly biased one way or the other. Um, I've uh, agreed to donate my organs mm. um, wherever possible and you know, relevant for the for the donor recipient. Uh, I can understand my wife uh, and I were talking about it, and she wants to be buried intact. Uh, she doesn't want bits and pieces of her dispersed elsewhere because uh, she wouldn't feel like a whole person. And I, I get that to some extent. Um, I get the logic behind it. But you know, the gift of, for me, the gift of sight is you know, immeasurable. But the important thing there is you both actually managed to have that conversation, which, as we keep hearing about today, is one of the most important things you can do. Also on the line, Kate in the basin. Kate, good morning. 
Good morning. Kate, you've actually been involved in this process from a nursing standpoint. Yeah, I'm a nurse in one of the smaller hospitals um, in Melbourne and we um, often do take um, remove the organs from the donors um, and then the teams that come in and assist with that then take them and send them literally all over the country. So uh, we've had police standing by to transport the organs to Essendon Airport where they're then sent. I think we sent one to Perth at one point, wow. another one to Sydney or Brisbane. Um, and I just wanted to say sometimes people um, say that Oh, yeah. I don't want my body defiled or, or like that. But it is such a. I love being a part of it, and I know that sounds really weird, but it's such a respectful thing. There is so much respect for the donor, and we'll often go up and speak to the families beforehand and get to know a little bit about the person. Um, and the atmosphere in the theatres is always respectful, and it's it's a really, it's an amazing thing to be a part of, and it, it's absolutely cemented that I will be an organ donor but um, it's it's a really respectful process. And I love that perspective because I think you know we want to make sure people understand it's not dehumanising you know you are still an individual when you are a donor and you are treated as such. Absolutely and we'll often talk to the patient to the donor um, like we do with a patient who's I'll often talk to my patients when they're asleep just just in case um, but we will often do that as well. And, and a lot of the time people will say thank you and there's often a tear or two because you realise what, what has happened and what another family is going through as well. Kate, I'm so glad you called and thanks very much. Max Whelan was 72 when he died in an accident on his Otwaves farm. This is back in 2021. He was a registered organ and tissue donor. He ended up donating lungs, kidneys, eye tissue, and it changed the lives of a lot of other people. His daughter is Catherine, and Catherine, good morning to you. Good morning, Nick. Thanks for having me. Did you know your dad was a donor? Um, no. We we found out um, at the time that we were in the hospital, um, the ladies from Donate Life had come in to speak to us about possible organ donation and um, we looked straight to mum to put that decision on her and we would support her 100%. Um, And as we were having that conversation, the ladies came back in and said, "Um, your dad has actually registered himself, which we all laughed because we thought, well, you know, he... Firstly, he's done it for himself and registered and whether someone's had that conversation with him or he's just, you know, right time, right place, thought he'll fill out the form, um, he did it. So for us, that was already, the decision was made and we weren't going to go against his wishes. Did it make it a bit easier? Like it was it was almost a relief by the sounds of it? Yeah, it, it was. Um, we just thought that it was really lovely that that's something that he wanted to do. Um thought it was great that he'd already uh decided that that was that was what he wanted um and we were so proud of him because he was um able to donate um eight eight organs uh, to eight individuals which was fantastic we heard from kate earlier who's been a nurse in this situation saying how respectful it is was that your experience of it yeah um we we're actually quite a large family there's eight kids um and so the eight of us were fortunate enough to be at that hospital uh, the entire time with mum um and of course it was borderline COVID so there were some times of when we could get in and when we couldn't get in um we were sitting in a waiting room and again uh, one of the ladies from Donate Life came in to say um look you your dad has been a successful organ donor um and he's been able to donate eight organs and we i'm I'm not sure what happened to us but we actually all just clapped um and we had tears and we were happy but yeah just um sorry no don't be sorry (laughs) really bittersweet moment it must have felt like almost a a legacy for your dad in many ways oh it was it was just we were just really happy for him that you know, in the circumstances we were in, that was, you know, a bit of uh, a bit of brightness in our day, really, for what it for what it could be. <laughs> yeah, and so for you, it was a genuinely positive experience. Did it did it make you think more about organ donation and yourself? Is that something that had been on your mind at all? Um, to be honest, I hadn't uh-huh. I hadn't thought of it at all prior to that moment. Um, 
prior to dad's accident had not thought of it um at all um it's just never something that had been in our family no one had uh at that point needed an organ or had donated an organ and then since uh dad's passing it has been something that you know donor hero night comes on and we would promote that on our social media pages um and throw in our support behind it and of course have since signed up to be um organ donors um and i feel really privileged to be able to do that and hopefully you know when it is my time that comes hopefully i do have viable organs that i can pass on to someone that can that can use them and i mean you know as you said you've even become a bit of an advocate for it obviously talking to me but even on social media letting people know what a difference it can make to people's lives yes well my license was renewed needed to be renewed 6 months after um dad passed away and the slip had come in with the or it actually came in with my husband's renewal and I thought, I've probably received this 10, 15 times and I've never taken notice of it. And I know that sounds really rude and disrespectful, but I've never taken notice of it. Um, and so as soon as that came in, I took a photo of it and put it onto social media and just said, just a reminder, please don't throw this in the bin. Like, Please just take the time to fill it in or at least talk about it, have the conversation to see if that's something that you or your partner or you know, your parents might need to do in life um, just to, you know, put it out there and see if, if one extra person can sign up. That's, yeah. you know, the chance for seven or eight other people to to be able to live a, a more fulfilling life or a, a healthier, happier lifestyle too. Because I love the fact that you were able to um, understand your dad's wishes as a family, but um, you know, obviously it was a bit surprising to learn. So I think the the overall conversation I'm hearing this morning is make sure you're talking to people about this. Yes, absolutely. Just have that conversation. I And I, I might be wrong, but I don't feel like that question is a personal question to ask someone um, because like the men that um, just spoke previously to say that, you know, he would happy happily be a donor but his wife would prefer not to be. And that's okay. There's no yeah. there's no necessarily right or wrong answer, but if the more people can donate or they don't have a reason of why not to, then sign up. And then if you really don't want to, you can change it later. Catherine, but we all know no one will go back to change it later. <laughs> Catherine, I'm so glad about your dad's legacy. I really appreciate you talking about it. Catherine Matthews, her dad managing to change the lives of eight other Australians. Trish on the text line saying a part of you stay stays alive longer when you donate, which I think is a really interesting way of looking at it. Trish and an anonymous text is saying if my organs were donated, I would be really, really happy for the recipient to know about me if that's what they wanted. On the line, Yvonne in Albury. Yvonne, good morning. Hi. What, what did you want to talk about this morning? Well, um, yes, about the organ donation. So uh, I, I was a renal nurse and I saw how organ donations changed people's lives. I would see it quite constantly and how important it was. Um, when one of the, my daughters was in Year 12, she had to do a social justice program and it was about organ donation. And um, so we discussed sort of pretty much as a family about organ donation and it was a consensus. So... Two and a half years ago, my um, husband had a fatal brain injury mm. um, and he, um, uh, so it, when they mentioned organ donation, it was a very definite yes, right, there was no thinking about it um, because to me, that's a way of making him live on because you help other people, but he's still alive somewhere. And that's really important. Part of his heart, which was a wonderful thing, is out there. But the hardest thing was that I really wanted his um, liver to be donated. But you have to actually be brain dead to be able to donate a liver. Um, and um, he, I was asked if I was prepared to wait an extra night uh, so that we could see if he did become brain dead. 
Um, that didn't happen, at, but it was a really, really hard, it was the hardest decision I made about whether that extra night. And I'm really so glad that I did because I was able to spend that last night with him. Um, I, I don't know if he knew that I was there. I don't think so. Um, but I just lay on the bed with him and I held his arms around me and something no one can take away from me. Move and on. it was, it was, um, and knowing that you've helped someone just makes such a huge difference. Um, to validate an early death um, is if, if, yeah, because usually it's from an accident mm. that you, um, so, yeah. Anyway, and, and I just think that it's really important that people donate their organs. So, yeah. Yvonne, it means so much that you'd share that story and, um, you know, I can see why that meant so much to be able to do that. It, it's beautiful and I really appreciate you calling. Keith's on the line in Frankston. Keith, good morning. Um, yeah, I had a uh, heart transplant uh, what now, nearly 20 years ago. And, um, oh, look, it saved my life. Um, and I'm eternally grateful to the donor who gave it to me and possibly saved a lot of other lives. Keith, how long had you been waiting? Actually, it wasn't too long. <laughs> it was bizarre, actually. I, um, I got a cold, it infected my heart, and uh, I was nearly dead at the time. But I, uh, I think I waited about three months. Um, something like that. Had you thought much about organ donation before you found yourself on that recipient list? I was always uh, registered as a donor before that, I was, and, and I was a blood donor and all those sorts of things before that. So it's always been so. in your mind. It's always been in your mind on some level. Yeah. Keith, thank you yeah. very much. And also on the line, Marcus in Pakenham. Marcus, good morning to you. Hi, just, uh, just a, a, a thought. I don't know that it's been explained properly. Um, I remember sticking uh, a sticker on the back of my licence and the gentleman you spoke to before said, um, um, you know, the system in South Australia is related to the driver's licences and clearly that's changed in Victoria. That hasn't been explained why it was changed. Is it a better system now or was the system in South Australia a better system? That's something... I, I certainly remember putting the sticker mm. on my licence and saying, yes, I'd do it. And clearly I've got to go and um, check to see whether I am or am not at this point. I've been overseas and, 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 and the like. But, um, um, yeah, if that could be explained, I don't know that it has been in the conversation so far. Well, I know on donatelife.gov.au you can actually go and check if you are registered. I did it myself just the other day to make sure I was still on the register list. It's all very clear or very easy to do. Um, not everyone has a driver's licence. Tying it to driver's licences did limit who was actually able to sign up to be a donor by making it more open. It allows people who, um, yeah, just like myself for many, many years, didn't have a driver's licence, still wanted to be an organ donor. On ABC Radio, Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. Nick Healy here, filling in for Rochelle this week. Nearly 20 years ago, Alan Turner's daughter Zadie became an organ donor after her sudden death at the age of just seven. Now, at the time, she was the youngest organ donor in the state. And since then, Alan has been a tireless campaigner for greater awareness around organ and tissue donation and also encouraging people to do it in greater numbers. Alan, good morning. Good morning, Nick. One of the things you've been campaigning on for the past couple of years has been a uh, what I would call a pretty significant overhaul of the way organ donation might work, essentially changing the system from an opt-in to an opt-out. How would you see this working? Quite easily, Nick. I think if you look around the world, uh, most of the world, most of the world's leading countries run the opt-out system, and uh, we're far behind that. We are now listed 22nd in the world as uh, uh, as listed as a, an organ and tissue donor in the in the world, a country in the world. Um, 17 to 18 countries above us work in the opt-out system. So I think if you look at uh, what they're doing worldwide and the world's best practice, uh, the opt-out system is an opportunity to 
not only change the culture of Australia when it comes to this subject, but it, it starts the, the discussion, it reunites the discussion out there in the community on a national scale. And it allows everybody to have the conversation about, do you wish to be an organ and tissue donor? Is it a yes or no? If it's a yes, fantastic. If it's a no, that's your personal response and that's fine. We'll carry that wish out. But I think if we look at what's happening around uh, Australia at the moment and Victoria, is they, all they do is they say, go and register and that will fix everything. Well, it hasn't, it never will and never has. So on a practical level with your system, if I want to be an organ donor, I literally don't do anything. Exactly right. That's what happens around the world. The, the top mm. leading countries have this system. If you do not wish to be an organ and tissue donor, sign a form and say, no, I don't want to be a donor. And that's okay. But when you talk to these people in the community and say, it's hard to register, I can't get on it, it used to be on the driver's license, it's all confusing, all confusing. People still don't understand that last gentleman said, I don't know. Uh, no one's explained it to me why it was taken off the driver's license. I'll tell you why. The government who 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 owned the list, uh, or sorry, the the, the 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 Victorian Traffic Authority who 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 looked after the license said we own the list. The government said no, we own the list. No, we administrate the list because it's on a driver's license. No, we we own the list because it's a national register. And each other said, oh well, go and get stuffed. Um, We'll take it off the driver's license. You do your own list. And that's how it occurred. And that happened around all other states in Australia except South Australia. And South Australia has got the best uh, register uh, of any community in Australia. I've seen a few people on the text line saying, you know, we do need an opt-out system rather than opt-in. It is something people have heard about. But in your time campaigning, I guess, how much interest have you seen in that from the people who could make these policy decisions? Well, that's what we're going through at the moment is the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the legislation needs to be changed on a state and territory base. The federal government can't do anything about it. It's up to do with the states, the same as the euthanasia law that happened a couple of years ago. And we refer back to the euthanasia law where uh, there was a lot of debate, a lot of bipartisan agreement, and they changed it. They changed the euthanasia law to allow those that wish to die at their pace in their time was allowed to happen. The day after the law was changed, nothing else changed in the world except those that were affected that needed that legislation to be put in place. The opt-out system is the same thing. It only affects those that are in need of a transplant and those that are in position to donate. It doesn't affect everybody down the, down the, down the street. So it's a simple change of the legislation that allows the culture to allow to the discussion to be out there in the community full-time and have that discussion. At the moment, there was a lady before says, well, we don't understand what happens after you sign up. The government have never, ever explained what happens when you sign the register and you get on the national data list. They've never explained what happens in the hospital at 2.30 in the middle of the night on a Sunday night, drizzling rain, and you've been called into the hospital and said to, and been told, unfortunately, your loved one's in a position to not to return home. They're going to die. Can we take their organs and tissues? And at that point, your whole world just collapses. Your whole mental state goes, oh, hang on, you're telling me one thing and mm. then you ask me another. I think we need a further education on what happens in the opt-out system. And this is proven in the UK and Wales and others that they have a 12-month to two-year leading about re-educating the community about what the benefits of an opt-out system is. And the community get that. If I do a survey today, 95% of the people out there will support a knocked-out system. We all agree that organ and tissue donation is a good thing, but we are a lazy country. We're a country of gunners. We're going to get new shoes. We're going to go and get tickets for the concert. We're going to get new tyres for the car. We're going to register. Well, people never do. They never get around to ticking the box to say we're going to register or spending that time. Having an opt-out system avoids all of that. And only those that don't want to become a donor say, hey, I'm going to sign a form and say no. And that's okay. That's fine. Alan Turner, thank you. Alan's from Zadie's Rainbow Foundation. He's been working on improving numbers of organ donation for a long time now. Text in saying we actually have Zadie's book. It's so good. My daughters who are five, seven and nine have been reading it for years and know that they will donate their organs. Last year, one dressed up as Zadie for her book week. Thank you for the amazing gift. Thank you, Alan. I really appreciate you texting in. Narelle on the line in Colac. Narelle, good morning. Good morning to you. 
I am just ringing to uh, obviously support um, organ donation. I was very lucky to receive a kidney in April last year um, and obviously um, I, it, it was just the, the best thing for me because it, it saved my life and it completely has altered my life. Um, I had been on dialysis uh, for nearly four years and was obviously on the waiting list for that amount of time for a, a new kidney um, and I was very I'm very grateful to the family that um, allowed me to have the donation. And, um, yeah, and it was actually my kidney was flown from Tasmania um, over to Melbourne, to St Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne, where I received the kidney transplant. Narelle, I'm loving people like you sharing these stories. I think what it's teaching me is that we may not talk a lot about organ donation, but so many people have been impacted by it. Joan in Camberwell. Joan, good morning. Good morning, how are you? I'm good. What did you want to talk about? Um, I think there's not enough emphasis put on the fact that we can actually donate a kidney when we're still alive. Um, I donated a kidney to my husband 15 years ago and I'm healthy as anything. So I, I, I know a lot of um, details go, are going into, you know, about after somebody passes away, but you don't have to be dead to donate. It's a really good point. Living donation is something that we maybe don't talk about enough. Um, right. Was it a hard decision for you? Was it? Was it? Not at all. Not at no. all. Not at all. And I in would, terms I, of the I actual, said, if I had three kidneys, I would give away two. <laughs> John, thank you. And it is a really important element. Thank you for calling in, Joan and Campbell. Well, um, a few texts in as well. Helen saying Alan's been doing amazing work following the tragedy of losing Zadie. Helen saying we should be supporting. Zadie's Law. Professor Dominic Martin is Associate Professor at Health Ethics and Professionalism at the School of Medicine at Deakin University. Professor, just quickly, we, we heard a bit about the opt-out system just before from Alan. Are, are there ethical concerns about that? Um, there are some ethical concerns uh, that can be addressed in practice. I guess the most obvious one is the worry that some people may not be sufficiently informed about it. And if they're not, then they may not be able to opt out if that's something that they wanted to do. But in practice, in countries that have implemented opt out, that's why they always approach the families. So the families ultimately will still be sort of reinforcing or making that decision on their behalf. There are also some, I guess, ethical concerns about... Um, or rather sort of the driving impetus for that opt-out policy is that people think that that will be the thing that increases donation. And I think we have to be mindful of the fact that it won't necessarily do that, that it still comes down to that ultimate decision that's made at the time of a person's death. And we know that internationally. The policy itself is not what will increase donation rates. It's maybe the, our attitudes towards that decision and how easy we make it for people to make a decision. Right, so it's not a silver bullet. We haven't seen the countries that do it sort of get huge boosts in donation numbers. Absolutely not. Um, it's something that a lot of people expect, which I think is is reasonable. People particularly point to the example of Spain, which is the best performing nation in terms of deceased donation. But even the sort of the architect of the Spanish model, uh, Rafael Matazans, he says, look, it wasn't that. It was everything else that we did to help sort of support identification of donors, support that decision making at the time of death. So in Spain, people still approach the families and families do still sometimes decline donation. So it's, it's a multifactorial problem that we need to address, not just the policy about consent, I think. Dominic, you mentioned deceased donation before. We, we heard from Joan about being a living donor. It does feel like we don't necessarily communicate about that as much when it comes to organ donation. I think that's a really great point. Um, I think in Australia, we're perhaps behind the eight ball. Um, my understanding is that in New Zealand, they're more proactive with living donation, um, at least where kidneys are concerned. And that may be, of course, because they don't do as well as we do with deceased donation. But I think some clinicians are also a little bit uncomfortable about talking about it. There's that concern that a living person is you know, being harmed. Um, even in good circumstances, a low-risk donor, it's a pretty big deal to donate your kidney to someone. Um, but it is possible, and as Joan's sort of example makes clear, some people really want to do it, and I think we could be a little bit more proactive in supporting that and um, encouraging people to consider that as an option. It's interesting to me that when we actually see living donation perhaps portrayed in the media, you know, in, in films and TV, it's often given quite a negative context, this idea of people being almost tricked into it. 
Uh, in some circumstances, obviously, um, that, that can be a concern. I do quite a bit of work in organ trafficking and certainly in some countries there are concerns about being tricked or, or forced into donating. But in countries like Australia, um, there's you know, lots of instances, you know, hundreds of people do this. It's safe. Um, it's really beneficial for the recipient. And it's something, again, that people can make an informed and voluntary choice to do uh, that we should support. We also mentioned earlier and heard a little bit about the idea that people who are involved in voluntary assisted dying could end up contributing a certain amount of organs. Is there something tricky ethically regarding that? I guess the, the obvious concern is that we would be worried that some people might choose to undergo assistance in dying to sort of end their lives prematurely if they felt that, you know, they really should try and do a good thing by donating. Um, so we want to make sure when that opportunity presents itself, it's going to be very few cases of people who are eligible for assistance in dying who could be eligible for at least donation of organs after death. But we want to make sure that their decisions are separate, that the decision to undergo that assistance in dying is made independent of any interest they might have in donation because it can be a conflict of interest. And I guess in many ways, like when we keep pushing forward in medical technology, when your dead has changed to a large degree, like our understanding of what death is has changed quite significantly. Yeah, that's a, an area of significant um, scientific and clinical controversy uh, at the moment. Uh, the more we understand about the dying process, uh, the more we understand about the brain um, and the more technologies, as you say, that we've got that potentially can put off that moment of death um, or maintain people's bodies in states where you know their hearts are still beating, um, it can get a little bit confusing uh, in terms of deciding what are the clinical criteria that we will use to determine when a person is in fact dead. Uh, to some extent, that you know, that's something that's changed over the centuries. We used to decide people were dead when the bodies were smelling. We then learned about the circulation and were able to listen to heartbeats and it's becoming increasingly sophisticated. And because of donation, obviously, intersects with that, with big decisions about the timing of death, that can mean that it becomes quite ethically complicated as well. Dominic, thank you very much. We will have to leave it there just because we're coming up against the end of the hour. Dominic Martin's Professor in Health Ethics and Professionalism at the School of Medicine at Deakin University. I wanted to quickly chat to Darcy in Cheltenham. Darcy, what did you want to chat about this morning? Um, I just want to let everyone know that you don't have to undergo, if you want to be a donor, a live donor, you don't have to, don't have to go major surgery and have a donated kidney. You can actually be a bone marrow transplant or bone marrow donor. I had a bone marrow transplant from now 75-year-old lady about the same age as my mother who lives in South Australia called Marilyn 30 years ago. 30 um, years ago? 30 years ago. It's the the, the um, procedure to donate bone marrow now is not much more, a little bit more complex. You need to have some medication a day or two beforehand, but it's not much more difficult than a blood transfusion. And Darcy, I think that's one of the interesting things too, is as we've been talking about this idea that you know living donors don't get that conversation often enough. That's me. Thanks for having me. I'll say goodbye. Rochelle will be back with you from Monday. Enjoy your weekend.